You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, if you need to borrow a pew Bible, it's on page 860. And while you're turning there, I just want to start off by asking you a question, and that is this. What are you willing to risk in order to follow Jesus? For example, are you willing to risk your reputation? In other words, if if following Jesus means that others won't like you or they won't respect you or maybe even they will talk bad about you, is following Jesus still worth it? Is it worth the risk? Or what about this? Is following Jesus worth it when he asks you to do something that doesn't make sense? Or he asks you to do something that's hard or, or something that might be embarrassing or that would make you look foolish. And, and those kinds of moments, is following Jesus and is obeying him worth it? Or what about if in following Jesus, he asks you to change jobs or to move to a new city or a new country or something else like that, which could possibly risk your financial stability, your financial well-being, or, or cause you to leave everything that's comfortable and familiar in your life. And, and those kinds of moments, is following Jesus worth it? Is it worth the risk? You see, here's the thing about following Jesus. Yes, the Bible is full of many, many wonderful promises, ones that you and I can bank our lives and our eternities on, ones that bring us comfort and hope beyond anything else in this life. However, following Jesus still requires faith. And as John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement of Churches, used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. You see, one of the things that I've learned in following Jesus over the years is that there's no getting around the fact that in following him, it involves faith, and faith involves risk. Yes, Jesus promises to never leave us or to to forsake us, but he does not promise to never embarrass us or challenge us or move us out of our comfort zones. Jesus never promises us that we won't have to go through hard things or that everybody in our lives will love us. In fact, one thing he does promise Christians is that if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. And so again, following Jesus, it requires faith, and faith involves risk. And faith and risk are two things that we see displayed in all three of the stories that we're going to look at today in our passage. And so hopefully you're there in Luke chapter 5. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 1 to 26. And another common thread that we see that runs throughout all three stories is that in each of them, Jesus performs a a different miracle. And so to separate them and to guide our time this morning, we'll look at them individually. And so first, we'll look at the first miracle in verses 1 to 11. And then we'll look at the second miracle in verses 12 to 16. And then finally, we'll look at the third miracle in verses 17 to 26. But before we do, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we invite you into this time now. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, you would illuminate the scriptures to our minds and to our hearts. Lord, I pray you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you. And God, I pray as a result of just spending some time this morning looking into your precious word, Lord, I pray that our hearts would grow in love and in trust in you. And so Holy Spirit, would you do that deep work this morning in our lives? In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 
Okay, so starting with this first miracle here, let's uh, begin reading the story now in, in chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught from the boat. Okay, so the, the scene in context here is, as we said a few weeks ago, Jesus is out preaching and teaching in the region of Galilee. This is still somewhat early in his ministry, but, but at this point, things are really starting to take off. He is uh, really blowing up in terms of popularity and fame, and so huge crowds are starting to gather around him. They're coming to hear him speak. And so Luke tells us on this one particular day, here he is, he's preaching by the Sea of Galilee, or as Luke calls it here, the Lake of Gennesaret. And while he's preaching, Simon and uh, his partners, James and John and probably his brother Andrew, are, are all there and they're washing their nets. And, and while they're doing that, Jesus is teaching to this large crowd, and the crowd apparently uh, maybe was getting too close for comfort, and so Jesus climbs into Peter's boat. And he asked Peter to push him out a little from uh, the shore. And so he could have kind of a, a little stage or just, again, some distance between him and the crowd. And the thing that's sort of interesting here is that Luke doesn't even tell us what Jesus taught on that day. He just, he just tells us that Jesus sat on the boat and he taught the people. But then it says this in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets let your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And so this is, this is a little bit strange. This is a little bit ironic. Here we have the carpenter's son giving the professional fisherman advice on fishing. I mean, that would be like me trying to tell Bill Nicholson or Tom Eastwood how to build a house. It just, it's not right. But yet, he is Jesus, he's the Son of God, and so he can get away with it. But, but even still, I think it's a little ironic. And you can tell based on how Peter responds that he senses that, that he's maybe perhaps a little annoyed. He's, he's at the very least, he's hesitant. It's as if he's thinking, really, Jesus? We, we just spent all night fishing, and, and nighttime's the best time to fish, and now you want us to go out during the day, the time when it's the hardest to fish, and you want us to let down our nets, and not only that, Lord, but you, you just saw us. We just spent all this time cleaning them, and now you're asking us to go right back out and get them dirty again. Like, really, Lord? And, and not only that, but if the crowd was still there, if, if people were still watching and they heard Jesus issue this command, it, they probably were tempted to feel embarrassed. Like, Lord, you want us to go out there in front of all these people watching and let down our nets after we just, you know, didn't catch anything all night, and you want us to just go down there, do that, and pull them up, and again, it's like, it's embarrassing. And yet, uh, Peter seems to be reluctant, and yet he obeys Jesus' word. And so to Peter's credit, even though maybe he's hesitant, maybe there's some reluctancy, he's willing to exercise faith, he's willing to step out and take a risk in order to obey. And so let's see what happens. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And so Jesus here in this moment, he performs an amazing miracle. 
Not only does Peter catch some fish, but they catch so many fish that uh, two boats actually begin to sink from the weight of them. And so in, in, in all of this, how does Peter respond? Well, look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I don't know about you, but I think that is an amazing response. Peter is completely undone by all of this. Jesus, in doing this miracle with the fish, he has gone after Peter's area of expertise. He's gone after the one thing that Peter had confidence in his life, and as a result, he has humbled Peter, and I believe he's exposed him. You see, Peter in this moment, I believe, understood that he was now in the presence of someone who was uh, not just an ordinary man. No, based on Peter's response, you can tell that he is fully aware that he is in the presence of someone holy, someone who is different from him. You see, Peter, in verse 5, he goes from addressing Jesus as master to calling him Lord in verse 8. Peter goes from freely letting Jesus use his boat and just being in his presence to saying, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. And again, this, this is an amazing response because on the one hand, Peter could have responded very selfishly. He could have responded by offering Jesus a job. I mean, that's probably what I would have done. I'd have been like, wow, you... Lord, you, you seem like you have a real knack for fishing. Uh, you know, the, the partners and I were talking, and we'd like to bring you on. And uh, we'd even let you name the boat, you know. But, I mean, he could have done that. He could have seen this as an opportunity to get rich. But instead, he responds with fear. He is utterly terrified. And Peter's terrified, I believe, because he knows he is in the presence of someone who is both powerful and holy. You see, Peter wasn't uh, seminary trained at this point, but he knew enough to understand that, that his sin separated distance between himself and God. And whether or not he fully realized that Jesus was God in this moment, I'm not sure. That maybe came later, but he understood enough to know that Jesus was powerfully connected to God the Father. And so because of that, he felt exposed. And so his response was to, to have fear and to ask Jesus to depart from him. And yet the thing is, is that what Peter doesn't realize here is that his response of humility, that his acknowledgement of his own sinfulness, that that mindset and that attitude is exactly the kind of person that Jesus was seeking. And so that's why one commentator on this section put it this way. He said, Simon Peter represents all disciples. His humility and awareness of his sin do not disqualify him from service. Rather, they are the prerequisite for service. Simon's response recalls the reaction of earlier great servants of God, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who also bowed low in humility when they caught a glimpse of God's presence. Jesus does not call those who think that they can help God do his work. God does not need or want servants who think that they are doing God a favor. Jesus calls those who know they need to be humble before his power and his presence. An encounter with God's power is no reason to draw back from him, but rather it's an opportunity to approach him on the right basis in faith and independence. You see, in catching fish, Jesus has caught Peter. And so this is how Peter responds to Jesus. But how, how does Jesus respond now to this request that he depart from him? Well, look at verse 9. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so Jesus responds to Peter's fear and his confession of faith, not with condemnation or judgment, but with grace. And with an invitation to follow him and to join him on his, on his mission to reach and to catch fellow sinners like Peter. You see, in response to Jesus and to receiving his grace, Peter and these other men we see leave everything. And they follow Jesus. And, and I know we're so familiar with that, right? We read through the Gospels and it's like, and Jesus said, follow me. And they left and followed him. But that is an amazing thing. That would not have been an easy thing for these men to walk away from uh, their careers, to walk away from uh, the very thing that their fathers and their grandfathers had done throughout their entire lives. And yet, in response to Jesus here, we see that they step out, that they, in faith, take a risk, and they follow him. And so that's the first miracle that we see in our section today. Let's go to the second one, though, and pick it up in verse 12. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him. He said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And so Luke shifts the scene now and he uh, moves us to a different story, to a different day in the life of Jesus. And this time, you know, we've talked about before, he's very careful with details and naming places and people and, and dates and all of that. And yet here, he's a little more vague. He just simply says that while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And so Luke may be vague on when and where this was, but he's not vague in terms of describing this man's condition. In fact, he flat out says this man was full of leprosy. I think the implication there is that this man had a, a particularly bad case of the disease. In other words, it was most likely all over his body. Now, without getting too much into this, this word leprosy uh, could have tied to it any number of skin diseases and ailments. And so uh, we don't know for sure, but it may not have been the kind of leprosy that we tend to think of when we hear that word. But either way, it was a, a severe skin condition, which according to Old Testament law, skin conditions uh, meant that you were considered unclean. But not only that, at this time, it, it appears that the rabbis were teaching that leprosy, and in fact, uh, really, they, they, they seem to teach that uh, any kind of disease or any kind of sickness or uh, uh, any other body ailment, that it was a result of someone's sinfulness, almost like a, you know, like a karma type teaching or something. And so because of that, they, they would imply that this man's leprosy was a sign of judgment. And so not only did this man have to deal with the physical pain of his skin condition, but he also had to deal with the shame of being thought of and accused by others as being cursed by God for his sin. But not only that, but because he was considered unclean, he also had to be separated from people. He had to be uh, stationed outside of the city. He had to be away from other people. And yet here, what we've just read is that in a moment of desperation, he runs into the city and he finds Jesus and he falls at his knees and he begs him for help. In fact, if you look closely, I think that the, the, the statement the man makes is actually quite amazing. Look what he says. He says, Lord, if you will, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
In other words, this man, this leper, has complete faith that Jesus is able to make him clean. He's just unsure if Jesus is willing to do it. In other words, he's not questioning Jesus' power, but rather perhaps he's questioning Jesus' compassion. So how does Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to tell no one but to go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So Jesus here emphatically answers this man's question of his willingness and his compassion by touching him and healing him and declaring him to be clean. And I don't want you to miss that little detail there about Jesus touching him because it's not insignificant. Most likely this man, as I said earlier, he had to be separated from other people. And so perhaps it had been a very long time since he had had any physical human contact from someone. And yet here we see Jesus extending his hand to touch him. And the thing is, is that Jesus didn't have to do that. You see, we read all kinds of stories in the Gospels where Jesus performs a miracle and a healing. And it's just by word of mouth. He just pronounces them to be healed. And yet here, he goes out of his way, it seems, to show this man how deep his love runs, how deep his compassion is by touching him. And on the surface, it would appear that Jesus, in doing this, that in touching him, he was risking uh, making himself unclean by doing that. And yet, because of what the text says, that doesn't happen. You see, when Jesus touched this man, instead of the man's uncleanness impacting Jesus, Jesus' cleanness impacted the man. In other words, instead of Jesus who was clean becoming unclean, the man who was unclean became clean. As one author put it, he said this, if, if you use your imagination, you can picture the uncleanness creeping up Jesus' arm as he touches him, and yet such is not the case. It's as if the flow has been reversed. Cleanness seems to flow out of Jesus. He touches the unclean and they become clean. He touches the dead and they become alive. This is just one indication that a new world is at hand and that death and uncleanness have met their match. So again, we see here that Jesus heals the man and he tells him not to tell anybody but to go straight to the priest and to offer a sacrifice. And really, in Jesus adding on these additional commands, these additional steps, this is actually, I believe, another sign of his mercy, another sign of his compassion. Because even though Jesus had cleansed and healed him, the man uh, still remained in social limbo until a priest examined him and declared him to be clean. And so again, in Jesus telling him to do this, to, to, to go to the priest, not only is he uh, allowing this man to, to stay in keeping with the law, but he's also helping him get properly reintegrated into society. And so Jesus reveals to the man the depths of his compassion. He heals him. He tells him to go to the priest, but he also tells him, don't tell anybody. And yeah, because of what verse 15 says, apparently word got out anyway. And so as a result, Jesus' popularity, his fame only grows more and more at this point. And yet, in response to that, in response to the growing popularity, the demand on his time, what does verse 16 say? It says this, 
but he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now look, I don't think that that is just a throwaway verse or another insignificant detail. In fact, I believe Luke very intentionally puts that verse in here. And I think it's an extremely important uh, principle in the life of Jesus. As Jesus' popularity was exploding and as the crowds were, uh, again, demanding more of his time, what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus maintained and he prioritized a habit of getting time alone with his Father. You see, if you just do a brief study through the Gospels, one of the things you see is that at the top of Jesus' priority list is that he got away alone with his Father. He consistently made an effort to get away from the crowds in order to spend time in prayer. And I think that for not only for Jesus, but for us, spending time alone with the Father is the key for us to be able to minister effectively. Again, if you were here early on in this series, Pastor Chris gave a message in which uh, he argued that Jesus did what he did, that he performed the miracles that he did, not out of his deity, but rather as a man who was empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to get into all of that again, but, but in case you're new, no, that doesn't mean we think that Jesus ceased being God while on earth. But what it does mean is that we believe that he chose to live as a man empowered by the Spirit, and therefore he was dependent on his Father. He was dependent on the Holy Spirit for power and for guidance. And so because of that, he would make this time to get away, to get in his Father's presence to make time and space to hear his father's voice, to, to figure out what it is the Lord, the father wanted him to do. That's why Jesus would say, I only do what I see my father doing. And I believe that because he did this, that this is where his power and his effectiveness came from. You see, I believe there's no doubt that Luke intends to make a connection between verse 16, which says, Jesus got away to pray, and verse 17, which we haven't looked at yet, but which later on says, and the power of the Lord was with him, to heal. You see, I think there's a connection there because as we've said before uh, many times from this stage, the power is in the presence. As you and I, as we make time and as we prioritize getting into the Father's presence by reading His Word, by praying, by singing, by listening to His voice, when we do that, I believe that it's then that the Father empowers us to do His work to minister more effectively. And I, I don't think he does that because he's some transactional God. Like, I don't think it's just because it's like, well, you do this and, and then and only then will I do this. But rather, I think it's a matter of trust. I think it's a matter of relationship. You see, I think he gives us more responsibility and power as we show and prove to him that we are in need of him. As we express our dependency by spending time with him and, and we, we illustrate that we trust him, I believe he then in turns trusts us with more. And so again, as I have looked at this passage, I don't think that this is a throwaway verse, but I think this is a very intentional and an important part of Jesus' life and I think it should be an important part of ours as well. And, but let's keep going here. Let's go to this third miracle in our section and pick it up in verse 17. On one of those days he was teaching, Pharisees and on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down in his bed through the tiles in the midst 
before Jesus. Okay, so again, Luke is somewhat vague on the details as far as when and where this was. He just tells us that on this certain day, at this certain time, Jesus was teaching. But this time, instead of being by the Sea of Galilee, he's in a house, and the house is packed. And not only were there people there from that city, but people were beginning to come from all over Jerusalem. We find out that people are coming as far away as Jerusalem. And, and a little bit later on, we see that even the Pharisees and the scribes were coming as well. And so as we've already indicated, Jesus' fame and his popularity, it was at an all-time high at this point. And even it's, it's to the point that the religious leaders are beginning to come and check him out. And so uh, as he's teaching, we see there that, that all of a sudden these men show up who are carrying their paralyzed friend. And so apparently these men must have heard that, that Jesus was coming into town and that they had heard the reports of the miracles and the healings that he was doing. And so like the good friends that they were, they, they went and picked their buddy up, their friend who was unable to walk, and they take him to go and meet Jesus. Now the problem is, is that traffic must have been bad that day or that they got the time wrong or something, but they show up late. And so the place is already packed and they're unable to get inside. And so in that moment, they have to decide, what are they going to do? Are they going to just say, oh, well, better luck next time? Are they going to wait outside and try to jump Jesus as he comes out the door? Or are they going to do something crazy? Well, they choose the crazy option, as we just saw. These men, they, they climb up onto some stranger's roof, and they begin to dismantle it. They take it apart. And not only do they take the roof apart, but they then begin to lower their poor paralyzed friend down right in front of Jesus' face as he's teaching. It would just be like, you know, here's Jesus teaching, and all of a sudden just this body starts coming down from the ceiling, you know? And yet they do that. They take this insane risk. They risk, you know, angering the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, they certainly risk angering the man who owned the house, but they don't care. They're stepping out in faith here. And so how does Jesus respond? Is he angry that his sermon has just been interrupted? He's like, you know, I was on point two and about to go to point three and you interrupted me. Now, we know Jesus wasn't a Baptist. He didn't do three-point sermons. But uh, um, he, you know, is he mad? Is he angry? So let's see, verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So far from being frustrated that his sermon's interrupted, Jesus sees their extreme action as an act of faith. And so in response, he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, son or man, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you've never read this story before, that's probably not what you were expecting Jesus to say there. That's certainly not what the scribes and Pharisees expected him to say, which is why they begin to question him and to think to themselves, why, you know, why is Jesus saying this? He's committing blasphemy here. Because these men have been taught that only God could forgive sin. They had been rightly taught that only God could forgive sins. 
And so they're sitting there in this room and they're quietly having these, these thoughts. They're, they're questioning Jesus. And then somehow, most, I think most likely through the Holy Spirit, Jesus discerns their thoughts about uh, what they're thinking about him. And he, re in response, says, guys, why, why are you worried about what I just said? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? And then before he gives them a chance to answer the question, he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So I say to this man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so Jesus, in this moment, this very tense moment, has put himself on the spot. By claiming to forgive this man's sins and then tying it to his physical condition, Jesus has just put his credibility on the line. Because the reality is, is that if this guy doesn't get up and walk, then people will know that God has not approved of what Jesus just said about being able to forgive sins. And yet, on the other hand, if the man does get up and walk, then they are in a tight spot. They'll have to, they'll have to really wrestle with that. They're going uh, to be having to choose, is this man true? Because the miracle just proves that what he said is true. And so they'll have to accept his claim. And so what happens? Look at verse 25. And immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what he had been lying on and he went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So what we see here is that Jesus delivers on his claim and he backs it up by performing this miracle. And the miracle leaves the crowd in awe and wonder to the point that they leave saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And so just to, to wrap up the story here, I just love what one commentator says about this section. He writes this, Jesus has just painted a picture that speaks more than a library full of books on Christology. He has backed up his words with action. God is vindicating Jesus' claims. At crunch time, Jesus applies his authority with great skills. As the paralytic walks, the question becomes, who will walk with him and share the forgiveness that Jesus has pictured? Fence-sitting is no longer possible given the nature of Jesus' claims. And so if Jesus is in fact able to forgive our sins, to forgive sins, then you and I, like the paralytic, we have to make a decision. We have to come to him in order to receive that forgiveness. And so as we just step back from all three of these stories, um, and as we just kind of look at them collectively, what is it that they show us? What is it that they teach us? Well, obviously there's so much that we could dig into here, and some we've already started to draw out, but, but as I thought about them just together, what I saw uh, as the big idea was this. Jesus is not afraid of sinners, but rather he loves them and he offers them forgiveness and healing and invites them to join him in his mission to reach lost sinners. However, receiving him and following him takes faith and it requires risk. Now I'm sure if I plugged that sentence into Grammarly or if I had one of you English teachers look at it, you would eat me alive, right? I mean, I don't, I don't even know what a run-on sentence is, but I think that that might be one. But I don't care. I think that's the big idea of these miracles. And so for the rest of our time, I just want to break down uh, each of these phrases and look at them and see how they apply to our lives. And so the first phrase here, Jesus is not afraid of sinners. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, what that means is no matter how you came in here today, 
whether you've been following Jesus for 20 years or whether this is your first time in Sunday or, or in church or whether you used to come and you uh, have stopped coming, it doesn't matter. Jesus is not afraid of you. He's not going to run from you. You see, Jesus loves us enough to take us where we're at, but he loves us too much to let us stay there. And so this is a fine place to meet him, to meet him where you're at. You see, in other words, what I'm trying to get at is that we don't have to act like Peter and ask him to depart. We don't have to, uh, to, to just think that our sinfulness somehow keeps us from him, but rather, like Peter, we do need to approach him with humility. We need to come to him with our need to say, Lord, I am a sinful man. Lord, will you help me? Will you heal me of my sin? Will you forgive me? And so, again, we see that Jesus is not afraid of sinners, which means he's not afraid of us. Now, the reason that Jesus is not afraid of sinners is because of the next phrase, which says this, but rather he loves them and he offers them forgiveness and healing. So the reason Jesus is not afraid of sinners is because, as we saw with the paralyzed man, he has the power and he has the authority to forgive sin. Remember what, what we said there about that, that Jesus, what, what he told them is that he is the son of man. He has the authority and the power uh, and the, uh, to forgive sins on earth. And the reason that Jesus could say that, the reason that he has that power, that reason he has that authority is because, or it's not because he treats sin casually. It's not because he treats sin lightly, like, oh, it's no big deal, like, that doesn't bother me. No, it's because he knew that in love he would hang on a cross and he would pay for that sin. You see, Jesus could forgive sin because he became the sacrifice for sin. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is one of my favorite verses, it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus, this man, this God-man who knew no sin, as we, as we looked at a few weeks ago in his temptation in the wilderness, he perfectly uh, said no to temptation every time. Because he did that, and because, as we've said before, because he lived the life you were supposed to live, and because he died the death that you were supposed to die, because of all of that, you and I have forgiveness. And so we see here that Jesus is not afraid of sinners, but rather he loves them. And he offers them forgiveness and healing. And not only that, but he invites them to join him in his mission to reach lost sinners. So not only does Jesus forgive us and offer us healing from sin, but he also invites us into his mission to reach and to fish for those who don't know him. You see, Peter thought because of his sinfulness that Jesus would reject him. But instead of rejecting him, Jesus recruited him. And I don't know... I don't really understand why Jesus does this. Like, I, I don't understand why he wants to include us in on his mission. You see, I think that Jesus could do a far better job reaching the world all by himself. But for some reason, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, he invites you and I to be alongside of him in this work. And I think the reason that he does that is because he is a relational and a generous God. And because of that, he enjoys spending time with us and he enjoys including us in on what he's doing and, and inviting us to work alongside of him on this common mission. You see, I think it's much like how a father lets his little son hang out with him while he fixes a sink. You see, the father doesn't need the little son's help. In fact, it often makes the job harder, right? But because he loves his son, because he enjoys being with him, he invites him in on what he's doing. And so he says, son, hey, you know, son, pass me the wrench. 
Dad, what's a wrench? Oh, well, son, you know, this is the screwdriver, this is the hammer, and then this here is the wrench, so hand me that. Okay, Dad, and he hands him the screwdriver. You're like, wait, wait what just happened? I said, the wrench, give me the wrench. Or, you know, son, turn on the cold water. Okay, Dad, we're going to test it out. Turns on the hot water. Ah, you're burning me, son, what are you doing? I said, the cold water. Again, Jesus doesn't need you and me to reach the world. In fact, I I'm sure we make his, role, uh, his job a lot harder. But even still, he invites us and he wants us to be with him in this work. And not only that, the thing that's really cool is because he invites us in on that and because he's so generous, we get to share in the joy and the reward with him. You see, just like how a son gets to share in the reward of helping his dad fix the sink, you and I will get to share in Jesus' reward of building his kingdom. We get to share in that reward of seeing men and women go from death to life. You know, on Friday night we were here at Acceler and I was talking with uh, my fellow co-pastor Mike Failer, who's just this ferocious evangelist. And I, I know he hates when we talk about this, but he's just, he's unlike anyone I've met. He's just always sharing his faith. He goes out on campus and is, he's just so committed to telling people about Jesus. And I was just saying, Mike, it's, it's so amazing that, that one day you're going to get to sit down with Jesus and you're going to get to see the fruit of, of all the times that you shared the gospel, Lord, of all the times you passed out a track, or, or you prayed for someone, or you said, hey, let me, do uh, you have a second, I can talk to you about Jesus. And there's just going to be men and women that, that you'll, never, you'll never knew the effect of it, but you're going to see the full ripple effect one day. And Jesus is, it's Jesus' reward, but he's allowed you to be in on it. Man, how awesome is that? How, how much joy does that bring Mike to know that God uses him? And how much joy does it bring you to know that the way that God's gifted and wired you, that he's included you in on what he's doing in this work of building the kingdom? You see, like those friends who carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus is asking you and he's asking me to do the same. But that brings us to the last part of this run-on sentence, and that is this. Jesus is not afraid of sinners, but rather he loves them and he offers them forgiveness and healing and invites them to join him in his mission to reach lost sinners. However, receiving him and following him takes faith and it requires risk. You see, as I said at the beginning of this message, the Bible is full of wonderful promises that you and I can bank our lives and eternities on. But in following Jesus and in joining him in on his mission, it is not a guarantee of a pain-free life. Jesus does not guarantee a life of ease. You see, unlike what the prosperity gospels uh, preachers would have us uh, believe, Jesus does not promise you wealth, health, and happiness in this life. In fact, in John 16, 33, he says, In this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, I want to go back to that first story. You see, in Peter and his partners, they, they may have ended up with two boatloads full of fish, but in the end, Jesus asked them to walk away from it. He asked them to leave all that was familiar and comfortable, and he said, boys, come, follow me. Later on, though, he would expand that, and he would say, pick up your cross and follow me. To them, that was dumbfounding. What do you mean? That's like, that's like us saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me. It didn't make sense, but yet Jesus, that's what he called them to do. You see, here's the thing about risk. Risk, in order for you to take a risk, it involves trust. And the degree to which you trust him is the degree to which you'll be willing to take a risk. You see, if you don't trust Jesus, you'll always be held back by fear. 
you'll always be tempted to not step out in faith. And yet as you get to know him, as you look at his life and his character, as you spend time with him, as you receive his love, your trust and your faith will begin to, your trust and your faith will begin to grow. As we sang in that very first song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, how I've proved him o'er and o'er." I think that means over and over. I don't, I don't know, but, but or and or, you know. Just as we live our lives, just constantly, he's proving to us over and over again his faithfulness. And as he does that, our trust and our, our faith in him begins to grow. And as a result, I think that we uh, should, as we grow in our Christian lives, we should be stepping out and taking more and more risk, which is just confusing sometimes. You know, I, I, I'm tempted to feel like Early on in my Christian life, those first couple years of following Jesus, I was willing to take way more risk than I am now, and I, I just don't understand it. You see, I, Jesus has proved his faithfulness to me more now than he did back, you know, when I was 19. And yet I believe that, that, that this is part of it, that, that as we trust him, fear just begins to fade, and we're willing to, to, even as Peter later on will do, step out of the boat. And so... As we think about this, I want you to, to think about this, this thought that, that Jesus risked it all by leaving heaven to die for you. Are you willing to risk it all in order to follow him? Like, will you follow Jesus when it's inconvenient? Will you follow and obey him when it doesn't make sense? Will you follow Jesus when it's hard? Will you follow Jesus when it's easy and you're tempted to think that you don't need him? Will you follow Jesus when it costs you financially? Will you again, like Peter and these men, will you leave the boat full of fish in order to follow him into uncertainty? Will you follow Jesus in his mission to fish for men and women in a culture that doesn't particularly want to be caught? Will you follow Jesus in this mission in a culture that's hostile to Christianity? Will you follow Jesus in his mission to reach out and touch the least of these, to touch the lepers of our society, the ones that our society has rejected? The ones that we've said are unclean, will you follow Jesus in ministering to them? Will you follow Jesus and do all that you can to bring your friends and your family and all who are in need of grace into Jesus' presence? In other words, will you do something crazy like climb up on a roof and remove it and, and lower your friend down because you're that convinced that Jesus' grace and his goodness and his love are worth it that you're willing to take a risk? See, again, all of these things that I just mentioned, there's no getting around the fact that in following Jesus, it requires faith. And as we've already said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And so as we close here, I just want to ask you one last question, and that is this. What step of faith or what risky action might the Holy Spirit be asking you to do right now in this stage of your life? You see, for some of you, it might be as simple as sharing the gospel with a neighbor or a friend. Or for some of you, it might be as crazy as moving to the mission field or planting a church. For some of you, it might be as simple as joining a ministry that serves the least of these. Or for some of you, it might be starting a ministry and leading it that serves the least of these. For some of you, it might just simply be working less hours. Or it might be you quitting your job altogether and taking a pay cut by switching careers. I I don't know what it is for you, but I know that he knows, and I know that instead of you living a life that's bound by fear, he wants to help you step into a life of faith. You see, Jesus knows in what areas of your life you're playing it safe, 
And he knows in what areas you need to step out and take a risk for the kingdom. And so let me just close here in prayer and ask him to show us. Because I think for each of us, there is a, there is a step of faith. There's a, a, a moment of risk that he's calling all of us into. And I believe that he can reveal to us what that is. And, and so I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, the ushers are going to come down and release you by rose to take communion this morning. And you can come down and take it back to your seat. And, and as, as you feel led, you can take it on your own. But before we do that, let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you just for the moments to be able to look at these three stories in the life of Jesus. God, thank you how each one reveals his love and his compassion for humanity. Lord, just thinking of you touching that leper when you didn't have to, it's just amazing. It's amazing the the extent of your grace and your compassion, Lord. The fact that you went after these stinky, uneducated fishermen and you called them into mission with you lord it's amazing and father i know just for myself lord there's i know that too often lord i'm bound by fear and i allow fear to keep me from trusting you out in faith and so i ask lord will you show me will you fill me with your holy spirit will you fill my friends with the spirit so that we can step out lord that we can be men and women who, in faith, take big risk for you. Lord, there is a huge world to reach. Lord, there's men and women who don't know you. Men and women that right now you're drawing to yourself, that you're calling into your kingdom, and you're asking us to join you in your mission to bring them in. And I pray that you would help us do that. Lord, we can only do that because of what we're about to celebrate now, and that is your broken body and your shed blood. Thank you, Jesus, that that like what you said to the paralytic, you can say to us today, your sins are forgiven. So, Lord, help us just to remember and to celebrate all that you accomplished for us on the cross. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.